Well, another one for the VHS list. Like, am I alone in that? I rather liked this one. It's kind of weird, since the one who wrote it didn't like it. Okay, real quick. Uh, this is... Actually, this is a first. This is our first female captain in Star Trek. No, really. This is the first one. I think this is the only female captain in TOS. I'm not sure about that, but I know this is the first. Either way, this one was directed by Mr. Lucas. No, not that one. If you remember, he stopped being producer back at the end of Season 2. But he kept he kept doing some jobs here and there. Uh, I think he's got another episode he'll be directing in the future. Which is good, because they were kind of director-hungry at this point. You may notice I didn't actually mention a few directors in Season 3. It's because, well, most of them are just going to be one-offs, just like back in Season 1. So we're back to that state. Anywho, this is written by DC Fontana. Now, she did this as part of the Pueblo incident, this, which was actually pretty recent at the time. Uh, to be clear, it was inspired by that. She wasn't trying to ape it, which is a distinction. But what's interesting is she uh, rather didn't like the way the episode turned out. Now, I'm going to share this quote from her. This is from an interview from her. Uh, <clears throat> so... She was asked to comment on the episode in her response, quote, I took my name from those last two you mentioned, which is Joanna and that which survives. The Romulan incident, the Enterprise incident, was heavily rewritten, much to my alarm, and I wanted to take my name off of it. Gene talked me out of it, but I ended my contract shortly thereafter because I did have a contract to do three or four. And when they, the producer of the show, told me that Dr. McCoy was Kirk's contemporary and was not old enough to have a daughter at 21 years old, I realized I hadn't even read the writer's guide. I didn't want to work for anybody who didn't even have a working concept of the show. In fact, the story editor, that would be Arthur Singer, by the way, I looked that one up, said uh, three months later, wandered into the set and asked our decorator, by the way, what does that transmitter thing do again? At which point, most of the crew gave up caring. Because when you do not have people doing the stories who are knowledgeable about what the entire show is about, you can't keep up pride in your work because you're being given drack. Now, I do think she's being a little too harsh there, but a valid point. Arthur Singer, in particular, I wanted to talk about because uh, several other people have mentioned him as well, including Robert Justman, who flat out said that Singer was actually a pretty talented story editor who had no idea what Star Trek was and was massively overworked and did not have any of the support he needed to do his job properly. In short, what we have is a similar situation with Friedberger, who also was in a similar case, massively overworked, didn't really know what Star Trek was, and it was just had it, not having the support from the network that he needed to do the right job. In short, I'm not trying to start a witch hunt here. I'm not trying to point fingers. I'm trying to showcase how this whole Season 3 thing was kind of a mess. And I feel very, very bad for everyone who was still working on this show as of Season 3 in this environment. But I like this episode. There's some very serious logical flaws in it, don't mistake me. But one of the biggest ones that Fontana brings up is that the romance between the two is terrible, between the Commander and Spock. I really disagree with that. Maybe it's because it's buoyed by the, the value and power of the actors. Uh, Joanna Linville, who is a good actress, does an excellent job as the Romulan Commander, who... <laughs> We'll talk about that later. And, of course, Nimoy is Nimoy. You know, enough said. Both of them really managed to sell the, the dynamic the two have and do a good job with what they've got. Now, I, th like I said, there are some logical flaws, but let's jump into the episode proper. So Kirk is completely out of character. Good teaser. 
You know, it allows the... Again, this is the kind of thing that wouldn't work back in Season 1. But in Season 3, Kirk being this out of character is going to make the viewer go, Huh. Then we find out that the Romulans are using Klingon ships. Sure. This was technically the first time we saw that. The D7 design I mentioned. Several episodes that Matt Jeffrey designed. I bring that up because even though he designed it for that episode, Alana Troyes, it's now showing up, but this episode aired first. So the first time they saw a Klingon vessel is when it was crewed by Romulans. Anyways. <clears throat> so we see that, and... This is a heck of a gamble, if you're paying attention. Remember the last time the Enterprise, specifically the Enterprise, violated the Romulan neutral zone, they were nearly destroyed. The Deadly Years, remember that? Commodore Stalker. Yeah, that didn't go well. So that's gamble number one. Keep that in mind. Uh, I'll talk about the cloak in a second. Just just hold off on that. Uh, we'll talk about the cloak now, because my next note is about the Romulan commander. This, there's something I've talked about a few times before. There's this completely unintentional arms race between cloaking and detecting cloak in Star Trek, which actually I've always liked, but for the longest time I just sort of assumed was canon. It's not. There's nothing that officially codifies it anywhere. It's just, by what is effectively total coincidence, there is this Cold War. It's not Cold War. It's an escalation. Because they have the cloak, and then they figure out a way to detect it. And then so they make a better cloak. And then they figure out a way to detect that one. And it's just, this happens throughout Star Trek history. Going all the way back to Balance of Terror, and all the way up to something like, say, Star Trek Nemesis. Again, haven't seen the new Trek stuff, not sure what they're doing over there. But we see this as we go. In fact, it's even something that's brought up several times in TNG and DS9, where they have methods to detect certain cloaks, and then the cloaks get improved under certain methods, but then we discover new methods to detect those cloaks, and so forth and so on. So this idea lines up smoothly. What, what the Enterprise is doing here is we're operating effectively as a branch of Starfleet intelligence to grab one of those new cloaks, the ones we can't detect, unlike the previous ones, which we could. Remember, we could detect the motion in Balance of Terror, but we can't detect these ships while cloaked. That's made extremely clear at the beginning of the episode and at the end when the Enterprise operates it. So, now we have one of these on hand that we can now use to study how to pierce it so we can detect cloaks again. And, and the cycle continues. And Spock himself even mentions this, references this completely unintentionally towards the end of the episode. Military secrets are fleeting. Right? So I'm, I'm actually down with this idea, because some people have complained about this episode as, well, why doesn't Starfleet have cloaks after this? Now, we know the actual out-of-character reasons, because Starfleet doesn't sneak around, which is a stupid reason. We know the in-character reason. We, we agreed to give away this particular tactical advantage in exchange for diplomatic brownie points during the Treaty of Algernon, which wouldn't happen for several decades after this point in lore. Which isn't a bad reason. Unfortunately, the problem is we don't know the full details of that treaty. I might be thinking of the wrong one. I think it's Treaty of Algernon. We don't know the full details of the treaty, so we don't know what we got in exchange. Now, I've spoken badly about that before, and I will continue to do so, but it's mostly because of a lack of information. It is possible that that was a fair trade-off. That doesn't explain why we don't use cloaks before then, because there's a several, several-year gap there where we're totally cool with this. Right? <sighs> Whatever. Either way, ignoring the fact that the Federation isn't using cloaks, all of this lines up and makes perfect sense to me. So the Romulan commander... 
Kurt comes in and is like, you know, ah, no, it was an accident. I didn't mean to, of course. She then goes way out of her way to try and drive a wedge between Spock and Kirk. In fact, between Spock and everyone else, she's constantly emphasizing that he's Vulcan. She wants this to be the identity she, he attaches. And can I just say, and I think this is pretty much down to Fontana, because she has such an understanding for the thing, uh, for the character, excuse me, and she's really good at character stuff. The character dialogue between her and Spock is brilliant. I could just gush. I, I would love to do a scene, a second-by-second second analysis of the way that she and Spock play each other during their scenes. Because it's it's beautiful. We can appreciate Vulcans. And then she goes over, Vulcans are incapable of lying. And, and this whole time she's trying to drive this wedge there and trying to establish and and reach out to his Vulcan pride, which then leads to her statement, Vulcans are incapable of lying. Or maybe it's a myth. This is brilliant, because having been given this opportunity, he then responds with, uh, I, I, I refuse to answer. It, it is not a lie to withhold the truth. At which point she says, aha, there is a truth to withhold. And all of this is Spock playing her now. She even mentioned how this Vulcans cannot lie thing might be a myth. It is, of course, a total myth. Vulcans can lie all willy-nilly. Remember, even if we ignore all future canon and everything after this and all the other shows, that's been established up to this point many times. If nothing else, Spock has absolutely no problems lying, and he, he, that might be the reason. But of course, we see Vulcans lie in the future, so again, whatever. I mean, Tuvok, right? <clears throat> also Sarek, if you want to get down to that. So this, he, he, it's mentioned as something that she can't treat as reliable. It's just a theory or a saying, you know? Like a cat always lands on its feet. Or actually, actually, that's a bad example. But you know how there's sayings and people just sort of treat them as if they're absolutely true? What she has done is mentioned this saying, and he has then rephrased his argument against it to confirm the saying as true, which she then uses as her new ground point to begin her new attack against Kirk by saying, aha, there is a truth here that is being hidden, and that's what must be unveiled. It, it's not, like, super subtle. It's just brilliant and beautiful and bold, and I love it. God, I just, I just want to gush about these scenes. This is part of what I love so much about this episode, is the dy dynamic between uh, Joanne Linville and Leonard Nimoy. The two have wonderful chemistry together, by the way, which is not something I say often in TOS. The core three, they, they have good chemistry together. That's kind of it, <laughs> as I've said before, you know. No offense whatsoever to the other cast members, actually. I rather like them and wish we saw more of them. But they don't really gel with each other as well as the core three do. Anyways, so... Having done that, and uh, this then leads to uh, Kirk adamantly denying it. No, no, of course not. Which leads to her to escalating, which then she then puts out, she basically pulls out her diplomatic sword, so to speak. She's like, all right, well, because this is espionage and because you're trying to get our cloak, this is bad. And then, then Spock now has to intervene. Notice that this is still Spock playing her, by the way, by effectively uh, coercing, for lack of a better way to put it, her into pushing this particular element. Now he has the opportunity to use this as the excuse, the Cassus Belly, if you will, to say, no, wait, I must now tell the truth. 
because if he just told the truth originally, that would have been seen as suspicious and far too easy. I love this scene. I, re I love all the scenes between the two of them, really. So he says, no, Kirk went in for glory. Individual and personal. Why? Because that absolves the Federation. This is why Kirk was acting so wonky earlier, because if anybody else looked into it, the records would show he was weird. The uh, If the crew were interv interviewed or interrogated, they would confirm that he was weird. You notice only two people were in on this originally, Spock and Kirk. Eventually that circle expanded to include McCoy, and then later to include Scotty and Durst Chapel. That's it. That is how you run a tight ship. You don't let other people into the circle unless you have to, although the Chapel thing is ridiculous. But we'll get there, we'll get there. So she offers a bomb to the Enterprise. We'll not kill you or destroy you or, or invade you or anything like that. You just follow us, okay? You know, this is not your fault. You follow us, we'll release you under normal channels, which is terrifying, but politically speaking, it would be more advantageous for the Romulans to do that and actually release them, maybe after a light interrogation. I know that sounds casual, but truth be, speaking, truth be told, under these circumstances, that is going very lightly. But of course the Romulans would keep the ship. They, after all, want the military intelligence just as bad as Starfleet does. It's just in the different direction. Scotty says, nope, piss off. We then have another wonderful scene between the two of them. She keeps hammering this point. You're a Vulcan, you're a Vulcan. I think this might be the first time Spock is flat out asked, do you identify more as a human or a Vulcan? And his response is, Vulcan. Now, that's not exactly news. He's, he's constantly identified himself as a Vulcan this whole show. It's just, I think that's the first time someone has asked him point blank about that. And his response has been, no, I am a Vulcan. So that's kind of cool. Either way. The, then she starts to play him. By which I mean he starts to... The two play off of each other. It's, it's poetry. God, it's poetry. Why do you not have command? Well, I do not wish command. Uh, maybe it's that command has never been offered to you. Uh, that is a possibility, I suppose. Well, you see, this is the kind of situation where someone who is incredible as you, praise, 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 should have things offered to them to denotate your great your, your greatness. You should have these kind of things. And that is, by the way, a very Romulan mentality. So we're actually staying in character from a species perspective, in addition to having this great scene between two great actors. Notice that this all lines up beautifully, too, with logic. Remember, the original plan was, which is, is admittedly, it's like five gambles in a row, but I suppose that's how most intel operations are, right? Sneak in, infiltrate, try to buy some time sufficient, you know, do the Kirk thing, absolve Kirk of the, the uh, excuse me, absolve the Federation by blaming everything on Kirk. Have Kirk die, that was always part of the plan. Then Kirk infiltrates along with Spock, they grab the, the cloak, they get the hell out of Dodge, they peace out. That was the original plan. A few hiccups on the way, but one of the biggest hiccups was the fact that Spock and the Romulan commander were romantically interested in each other. Now, obviously Spock is interested in women, and she is interested in men. I'm only prefacing that because I have to, to make the point that they didn't know it was going to be a she, and that she was going to be interested in him. Both of those points were not part of the plan. They ended up servicing the plan beautifully, but neither was something that was expected. So this is almost entirely Spock rolling with the punches. And yet, despite the romantic attraction, do keep in mind, she is still primarily politically aligned here. 
This would be, she even says it flat out, if I manage to bring the Enterprise home intact, that is a huge boon for me in my career. I'm going to get boosted. You know, I'm going to ha I might even be able to grab a seat in the Senate. She doesn't say that. But, you know, these are things that are possible given what she is about to try and accomplish. So, again, even someone who was not potentially romantically connected to Spock would still nevertheless be tempted by this offer in the same way. That's how the plan works to begin with. This is, of course, also why she's tiptoeing here so much. She's being really cautious. And of course she is. She wants that ship intact. If she charges in, guns blazing, there is an extremely high chance that all that will accomplish is the death of the ship and whoever she sends on board. If she just attacks it in space, which she can certainly do, that absolutely guarantees its loss. Remember, the definition of victory, which is something I've talked about a lot on this show and in real life, and I brought this up back in Voyager, definition of victory is one of those things you can use to make a seemingly simple or easy dilemma more complex and difficult to overcome. Because if all it is is just beat the enemy, then she's won, as of now. But it's not. She wants that ship. That's more difficult. Now we have an actual dilemma. For, and you'll notice most of the dilemma this episode is from her perspective. For the most part, our crew, our side, just kind of moves through things almost effortlessly and succeeds at almost everything. Either way, she then positions McCoy against Spock in order to try and ver uh, verify the situation, and then positions Spock against him. So Spock now takes command. This, of course, gives the opportunity for Kirk to attack and Kirk to be <clears throat> killed by the Vulcan death grip. This is probably one of the sillier aspects of the episode because it relies on the fact that Romulan intelligence does not know the fact that there is no such thing as a Vulcan death grip. Either way, it works. Kirk <clears throat> dies. McCoy is now in on it. This then leads to the only scene in the episode I don't like. Chapel just barges in on Kirk lying there. I know Starfleet security is a joke. I do. I rail against it because it doesn't make sense, but I, it's, it's demonstrably pro, true, excuse me, proven true. She just waltzes in. Oh, my God. Well, now you're part of this. Great security there. So much for the keeping a tight ship thing. It's also really irritating because the only reason she is there, no offense to Major Barrett, is to be someone to exposit off of. For anybody in the audience who hasn't figured it out yet, this is when they lay out the plan in full. That admittedly is a little irritating, because I could at least see it being, you know, McCoy and Kirk kind of going back and forth. All right, now that I've brought you back, why don't you bring me up to speed, Jim? And Jim's like, okay, well, I'm going to need this and this and that, or something like that. But no, instead they all just kind of explain things to Nurse Chapel, who acts like she's an idiot and can't figure out things as she goes. She even flat out says, huh? Um, no, she says, why? You know, I'm still dead. Why? Nurse Chapel is smarter than this. She even flat out says, there's no such thing as a Vulcan death grip. So Kirk beams over and is still good at infiltrating. It's good to see that. He got a lot of practice on the Nazis, so now he can infiltrate Romans just fine. There's this bit where uh, they, me they mention that the food is better on the Romulan ship, and yet, I hate to point this out, but I couldn't help but notice that there's a long shot where there's the same exact little painted food cubes that we've had on Enterprise for the last three seasons. Maybe they have better spice? I don't know. This is when the two finally start to actually get... She, she throws herself at him. She flat out tries to seduce him hard. 
This then leads to two things I find interesting. First is my mouse moves around on the camera, which screws up with my lighting balance. Hopefully that's not too bad. There we go. Second of all, they start doing this with their hands. The version of the script that went to print, excuse me, more like three versions of the script before the end, in other words, not the shooting script, but after Fontana had written it, it was written that the whole idea was they wanted to do this thing where um, he was kissing all over her. It was, it was one of those scenes, right? Nimoy and Linville both objected to that. Not because they didn't want to kiss each other. I mean, it's probably ambivalent. No, it's because both of them agreed that for aliens to express their affection in such a way seemed kind of odd to them. They wanted to do something else. Now, they actually kicked this up to Roddenberry, who agreed. Remember, Roddenberry's mostly completely hands-off at this point in Trek, so that was kind of a thing in its own right. And so finally, they got the final draft of the script changed, so okay, fine. No mwah-mwah. Instead, they do the hand thing. Now, I like that a lot. I do think this is a much better approach in how to actually show affection between Vulcans in general, especially given it was already established in Journey to Babel, but also with Romulans. I'm not against kissing, and a Vulcan or a Romulan can kiss each other however much they want, but I do think this works better, and frankly is actually more erotic. The way that they move and the way they talk against each other is you get the impression that this is a big deal, just like it would be for us if you just had this wonderful make-out with the person of the gender you're interested in, right? Just um, um, um. think about what that does to you immediately in the wake of that and the kind of breathlessness and just the, ah, the energy rush, right? They do a good job of portraying exactly that emotion in their own constrained ways simply by doing this. It's very well done. The second reason I like it, or I like the scene, the second thing I have to comment on the scene is... At one point, she leans over and tells him her name. And her name is Liviana Charvenek. Charvenek. Yep, nope, I said that right, Charvenek. Liviana Charvenek. That's not official, of course. But in more than one other source, that is listed as her name. And I felt like sharing because it's bugged me for years. <laughs> Anywho. <clears throat> um, so they have the touch. Uh, they beam over through the shields. I'm just going to let that one slide. This whole plan is insane. I've already already mentioned that. Um, it gets to the point where she realizes, okay, this is the jig is up. Spock then does exactly what his duty is to do. He plays for time, because he needs to make sure that they are not immediately trying to deal with the Enterprise, being unaware of the fact that they already got the thing and got out. Okay, sure. Not this is why the beaming through shields thing is actually kind of egregious, by the way, because. If if it was so normal to beam through shields, they might have already presumed that the cloaking device was off the ship, but instead they presume it's somewhere on their ship because their shields are still up, right? Come on, episode... Anyways. <clears throat> so he immediately confesses guilt, and is like, okay, I want to give a statement, I'm going to give this long, boring answer of what I think is going on, and blah, 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 in order to play for time. What's also interesting, though, is this then leads to the thing being plugged in with the Enterprise, like, okay, we need this thing to get going. Also, as a quick aside, you'll notice that now that she has failed in her given task, revealing Spock's true nature, or true intention, or however you want to think of that, she is now willing to risk what I mentioned earlier. Get the troops ready to send over. If the troops fail, blow up the ship. Cutting her losses, showing that she is a good commander, and frankly, does understand the situation quite well. This leads to the big escape, everything gets working, blah, 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 blah. One of the things I want to comment on before we chop off here 
It's a recurring theme, especially in TOS, that the big villains have respect for each other. This doesn't carry forward into future stuff. You know, the Borg Queen and Janeway don't really give a damn, and Dukat, uh, well, Dukat and Sisko's relationship is certainly a very antagonistic one. But the point is, in TOS, there was a lot of that. We had that with Khan, we had that with Kur, and now we have that with Liviana, or should I say Miss Charvenak. There's this mutual respect thing going on, and I think that's one of the reasons that these villains are so memorable, at least for me. I'm curious if any of you have memories. She was actually supposed to come back, uh, Joanna... Joanne Linville was actually supposed to come back as this same character for Face of the Enemy all the way over in TNG. I commented on that in my rumination on that. Unfortunately, she was just busy, so that didn't happen, which sucks. That would have been awesome. But anyways, this mutual respect thing. Because she's being escorted to her quarters, and she will be dropped off at the nearest outpost, where she will be processed and then returned. And unlike the Romulans, we're not going to put her through, like, interrogation. We're just going to send her on her merry way. So, effectively... This isn't terrible, although she's probably going to suffer a severe loss of political position and prestige back home. She might even lose her command over this one. So it's not like it's all sunshine and roses for her. The one victory she gets out of this is that she did actually tempt Spock. And the final scene between the two is gold, as it often is between the two of them, where he flat out admits that he actually felt something, that he was actually tempted that it was a real thought, and it was legitimate, that he wasn't faking it, in other words. It, they say it far more eloquently than I am, of course, but it, it's a really good scene. And, of course, his line, you know, I think, I'd like to think that what we exchanged is more permanent. It's just, I really wish she could have come back in some manner. This is just yet another example where there's a character on Star Trek which has this strong connection with a guest star who is never mentioned or shows up ever again. I cannot be the only one who's bothered by this. Despite these niggles, this is a great episode. Absolutely goes on the VHS list. I hope you guys have enjoyed my thoughts, and all Vulcan death builders.